Well, as uh, Pastor Kenny said, I am reading his sermon for us today. Um, I think with the advancements of tech right now and how many YouTube videos we have of Kenny, we should be able to throw it in a program and make an AI Kenny for us next time. It'll just show up on the screens, he tells us everything, but until that time, uh, I'm here and it is a privilege uh, to, do, to do this this morning. And I, I think one of the gifts of, of preaching to the preacher is that as you prepare, you are preaching it over your own heart. And so uh, as, as Kenny gave me his work, and, and I think that, I know that all of us here appreciate Kenny and the time he puts into his sermons, but I have 12, 13 pages to prove uh, his, his commitment to that. And as I read through it, uh, to just preach it over my own heart of, of what does it mean to be a real Christian this morning. And so I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. I think a lot of us probably have a question that actually the church that First John is writing to had, which is how do you know if someone's a real Christian? How do you know if you're a real Christian? It isn't an outward thing. Is it that uh, they have a fish sticker on the back of their car? Is it that they carry their Bible around with them everywhere? Is it that they don't swear? Is it that they go to church? Jesus said in John 13, this is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. But we also know folks that, that, that love each other as well, and a lot of people love could we say it's when someone has accepted Christ as their savior? But is it just praying a prayer? You know, maybe you've seen a t-shirt that says something like this, that, uh, and they'll all know we are Christians by our t-shirts that tell people we're Christians. <laughs> Even today, across the country, from, from different polls, about three out of four Americans describe themselves as Christians. And so this fall, as we're studying through 1 John, we're learning what does it mean to deepen our faith, to maybe take it beyond a bumper sticker or a t-shirt in our lives and answer one of the questions that John is answering, which is what are the characteristics of a genuine Christian, a genuine follower of Jesus? Because it's gotta be something deeper. That's why John wrote this letter. He wrote this letter 50 years after Jesus lived, died, and left the earth. He's writing to believers that are second and third generations removed from the historical Jesus, and many of them were beginning to question their faith. Not just because of their own inward questioning, but also because of false doctrines that have slipped into the church. The group that was primarily doing this was the Gnostics saying that there was a secret truth or something secret to understand. And so part of what they wanted to know was the answer to this question. How do you know if someone's a real Christian? How can we know if we're a real Christian? Over throughout this book, John gives three tests to reveal whether or not someone is truly a Christian. And this first one on your outline is a doctrinal test. What do you believe? What do you believe? Now, doctrine is a, is a Christian term, but at the same time, what it's asking is at the core of your heart, what do you believe? 
And then from that, he gives the ethical test. How do you live? How are you living your life in response to that belief? And then a relational test. Who do you love? Do you just love those that are easy to love or those that love you back? Do you love ultimately God? And these are the basic topics of everything that John is focusing on. And instead of just taking one of those topics at a time, if you read through his letter, he takes a cyclical approach. He returns back to each one of those. He says something about each one of those ideas, and then he comes back later and says some more about each one, and then he continues to repeat that as he keeps drilling down deeper and deeper into what does a genuine Christian, a genuine person that has believed in Christ look like? And so the first topic last week was, how do you live? How are you walking in your life? Because we are called in, in, his, in his book here to walk in the light. Because God is light and therefore we walk in the light. That is how we are called to live. And that means if we are walking in the light and understanding that God is light, that we'll take sin seriously. And we know as pastors and as fellow brothers and sisters in this church that many of us, most of us have a desire to have a greater intimacy in our walk with the Lord. I mean, you can look at the number of people and folks that we have in our home fellowships and Bible studies all of our small groups that are, are genuine Christ followers seeking to be serious about Christ. And as we, we look at this and, and continue to look at John's words here, we need to be reminded that when we look at our Bible and we see the chapter divisions and the verses that those were added in the 1500s to, to be able to find those passages easier as you talk about where you are in each one of those New Testament letters and epistles and gospels. But often, even though there's a chapter division, the thought of the author is continuing throughout it. It's not a separate saying, all right, stop here, this is something separate. And that's the case as we walk through 1 John chapter 2. And so I'll read the passage and you can read with me as well in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. So John's beginning chapter two by telling us, you wanna go deeper. You wanna take that next step. You want to make your faith deep and strong, then stop sinning. Maybe those that were first reading this and hearing this read to them have the same response that maybe we have to that answer of drawing closer and getting deeper. So that's not what I wanted to hear. There's nothing new and exciting. That's not a new and exciting truth to tell me if I want to go deeper, to just say, don't sin. It's like John is simply saying, if you call yourself a Christian, then start living like one. But of course, that only happens through the help of the Holy Spirit. And the question we might come with, but if a sin is inevitable, why, why, why should we struggle with it? If we sin no matter what, 
and there's forgiveness for that sin through Christ, then why do I need to be so worried about committing sin? If God promises to forgive sin, then why, why, why don't we even sin more? Because that God could forgive more, and he gets more glory because of the greater sins that he's forgiven. But John responds back to this, and as we continue to look and dive into these verses, we see that John is saying the opposite needs to be our reaction to understanding the forgiveness we have in Christ. And he's answering these false views of those Gnostics, and maybe false views that we have today on what our response to the grace of God is supposed to look like. John begins the call to this holiness based on two biblical certainties. And we need to know these and understand them. In 1 John chapter 1, we see that he says, number one, the first promise that we have is to forgive sin. We are promised that our sin will be forgiven. And the second is that we know this is true based not on our own works, but on the work of Christ. And that's what he continues to explain upon here in chapter two. Because he's saying the idea of walking in the light as he started, the idea of walking in the light is continued to say, walk in the light, and that means you are walking away from sin. Because he's telling us, don't hide from your sin, don't gloss over it, but admit it, confess it, agree with God, the truth of his holiness and what that shows, that light shows in the darkness of your own heart. And so as we look at these two verses and unpack them, we need to first see in verse one that we are called to, and on your outline, we should not sin. A simple idea. We should not sin. Siri's trying to tell me something, but I don't want to hear it right now. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't hide your sin. You can admit it because we have an all-sufficient advocate, an all-sufficient payment for this sin. And he is saying this as a pastor does to his flock, as a father does to his children. He says, my dear children, my my dear, close to my heart children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Counter to those that would say, it doesn't matter what you do on this earth because God will forgive it. He is telling them that we do not want to endorse the ways of continuing in sin. John says, this I write to you The this meaning, everything he said in chapter one, everything starting in verse five and continuing on through this book, this I say to you, because God is light, because he is holy in light, everything follows is the logic we are supposed to have. Followers of Jesus, Christians, ought not to sin because God is sinless. God is the light, he's holy, and when we draw closer to him, when we want to follow him, we go into the light. Even more specifically, we know that God will forgive us our sins if we agree with him that we are sinners. The question is, how does this assurance of our forgiveness actually lead to that response of holiness? If we're forgiven in advance, wouldn't that mean that we were freer to sin? This reminds of, of what Paul says as well. 
And on your outline, it says, when we understand how great God's love really is, and how deserving, undeserving we really are of forgiveness, it gives us an even greater desire to not sin. An even greater desire to not sin. Now, I know many of you have probably talked with folks that have had backgrounds of, of sin in their life that, that they're ashamed of as they've become a Christian. And, and I know that I've met with folks in, in premarital counseling that are afraid of, of sharing what they've been through for many reasons. One, of the, the fear of judgment of what they've done, but also a fear of even bringing those things up, even bringing up the sin could be an opportunity to let that back in. But that's not the way that scripture calls us to see this. A story from a pastor where he was counseling a young man named John who was in the military when he wasn't a Christian and he had hung out with, with a lot of guys that were terrible influences upon him. And then when he was deployed, he did things that he regretted even more. And after he got home, he found his way into a church in his home where, where he had come to faith. And as he came to faith, he met a godly Christian woman and they got engaged. But before he was married, he, he was honest with his fiance about the sad story of his life, his sinful life before he came to faith. And he was worried that he would fall back into that, that he wanted to be honest with who he had been and was worried that those temptations could overtake him. And he told her, not sure what her response would be to this, but this young bride looked at her fiance and she said, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and I know how Satan can work. I know that you've genuinely come to faith in Jesus, but I also know that we all have an old nature. And Satan will put temptations in your way and do all he can to draw you away from God. And if you were to fall into sin again, the devil will immediately tell you that you've ruined everything. And then you might as well continue in your sin. And then above all, you shouldn't tell me and you shouldn't tell God. But, God. but John, I want you to know that I love you and you belong with me. I want you to know that there is forgiveness with God and it would be hard to hear. But of course, I will forgive you. And as a young soldier told the pastor what his fiance had said, he looked at the pastor and told him, what my wife said blew me away and has given me the best motivation ever to rely on the Holy Spirit's power and to not fall back into that sin again. The response of forgiveness, the response of acceptance, not moving you to go, well, now I have free reign to do what I want. I know that she'll forgive me. But instead, knowing that acceptance and knowing that forgiveness that could come pushes you to Seek the light. God's promise is to forgive us for any sin that might come into our lives. And this is so we might not sin. To understand the darkness of what sin is. Because God's not shocked by our human behavior. And in spite of this, in spite of knowing who we are and who humans are, he sent his son to die for us. So that there might be a full and complete forgiveness a new heart given to us. And that's the promise that we see in Romans chapter five. The message has a great wording of this. this. is the proof of God's amazing love is that while we had nothing whatsoever to offer God, Christ died for us. While we had nothing whatsoever to offer him, Christ died for us. That's a grace beyond our comprehension. 
But God wants us to understand that this love and grace is not only completely possible, but it's so that we might be won by that grace and determine to use God's strength that we won't fail him. First John chapter three repeats this as John continues to repeat this idea. It says, everyone who commits sin breaks God's law for that's what sin is. By definition, a breaking of God's law. So in other words, when we sin, when we, we choose away from God's light, we're refusing to submit to God's word. We're refusing to hear what God has said and respond to that accordingly. When God's word says in 1 Peter to put away all deceptions, but then we lie on our taxes, we lie to our spouse or our work, that's a sin. We're refusing God's word. When God says to bring up your children in the instructions of the Lord in Ephesians 6, yet we make no effort to teach our children about the Lord, that's a sin. We're ignoring what God has called us to do. Even when we try to be as discreet as we can about our sin, we hide it in a corner away from everybody. Ultimately, when we sin, we are saying, Jesus, you may have died to keep me from sinning, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Every time that we sin, we are disbelieving God. That's a hard thing to think through as we feel, as we stumble into our sin, but what we are doing are living our lives in a way that's not believing what God has said. And we can't forget the reality that sin itself insults the suffering of Christ. You're probably like me that have seen depictions or or movies of, of the cross and the terrible, awful nature of the crucifixion. And to think through with that pain and love for us, for our forgiveness, when we continue to disbelieve God's promises and to live in the darkness, we're insulting what has been done for us, saying that it wasn't enough. So our saving faith, a faith of a genuine Christian, changes lives. So that when we act out of our faith, this is on your outline, and we obey God's word, it's an evidence that our faith is real. Not perfection is an evidence that our faith is real, but then when we act out of our faith and confess our sins, agree with God the reality of who we are, and then seek to turn towards him and towards the light, we have an evidence that our faith is real. These verses are almost a summary of what John continues to say throughout the letter. He's giving us two errors, two ends of the spectrum to avoid. Error one being to think that any sin we commit after following Jesus would rule us out of heaven. That Satan, the great liar and deceiver, would tell us, you really don't believe. You did that. that there's no way that God could look at you again. And John's saying, no, that that is a lie. Your forgiveness is complete. But the error number two is to think that we have the license to just sin as much as we want because God will forgive us. That our actions in this life don't matter because we already have the forgiveness. He's saying in between those is the truth. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Because John believes that this letter and the gospel can help us keep from a life in darkness and sinning. And if it can help them, 
If you truly believe that, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, it surely can help us today. Because God's word is alive and active and powerful. It's like a medicine that can heal our broken hearts. It is the light that we can guide our path and give us hope. And the second truth that we see in these verses on your outline is this. If we do sin, we have Jesus. If we do sin, we have Jesus. Because John adds, after saying, so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father when we sin, and often we will because our sinful nature is still fighting for control in our life. It should not lead us into despair because we have hope in Christ. Maybe a question you think of from this is then why would John say that his goal is that we wouldn't sin to then right away say that we could be forgiven from sin? John is motivating us to let us know how serious sin is, that we are motivated to flee from sin, but then he says, but you get forgiveness anyway. Instead of just taking what he says here and just saying, all right, I guess it's too confusing, we need to look at what John is saying and try to look at it with humility and understand the encouragement, but also instruction he's giving us. This is what our church needs and every church continues to need in order to be holy. To see clearly that the basis of our hope as Christians is that we are Christians who may sin, but the reality when we sin is that we have an advocate. And so to understand how this can help us, how this, how this idea can help push us into holiness is to understand what that term means. And so Christ, and on your outline, he is our advocate. He is our advocate. At the end of verse one, John's adding, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is someone who has an official relationship to you so that whatever that person achieves, you achieve. Whatever that person loses as your advocate, you lose. That person is a legal representative of you. That person is standing in for you as your advocate. Many of you might know or have, uh, have, have experienced or seen uh, scenes in a courtroom, either in a movie or a TV show, and it's often, it's so enthralling. You can see all of these things. It's very high tension. But if you've ever served in a courtroom, you know none of that is true. That's why everyone tries to get out of it and write that they're too busy a hundred times till the, you know, just stop getting contacted. And you assume, as I talk to someone after first service, you're kind of on the run from the courts, right? Because you're like, I just stopped responding. I hope they don't find me. Yeah, I served on a court uh, when I was 19 in a jury, assuming I wouldn't get in because I was a child. Uh, basically a child. And I got there and they said, now we want that guy. And I was like, okay, fine. And then, they, then it ended up that I became the, the head juror. And... I also laugh when it happened too, because it, I was on the jury with like a doctor and a, yeah, like real people, real adults. <laughs> and that's again, when I began to learn, nobody likes this. Is that what's happening? Because I was just like, I guess, I, I, was like, I guess I'll, I'll, be the, I'll be the juror, I guess. And they're like, great, it's that guy. And I was like, 
Okay, and as we sat there, I realized, I mean, it's, it's difficult work as you sit there and you, you listen to these cases and you listen to the two different advocates. You have the prosecutor and you have the defense and they are advocating for their side. And at the end, you have to give a deliberation as a jury. You, you settle in. <clears throat> and in my case, we, we decided after a long time and me sitting down as a 19-year-old talking to this 50-year-old guy being like, hey, you're holding up the whole jury. Like, what's going on here? Like, I'm sitting and talking with this guy. And uh, it was like, yeah, he's, he's guilty. And so we gave the, the, um, the pronouncement. And the, the judge told me, said, hey, so do you want to say the guilty verdict? And I was like, no. Because I'm, this is how far I am away from the guy. And this is back in Michigan. And I was like, I, don't, I might see this guy or something. Again, like I'm, telling, I'm standing up as a 19-year-old going, and you're guilty. We found you guilty. of like third strike, you're going to jail type stuff. And, and so I was like, I'm okay not reading it. And he was like, that's fine. You can just hand it to me. And I was like, he still knows that I handed it to you, right? And, but I was like, I handed it over to him. I found him guilty. And then after that, we're cleaning things up and then the judge walks by like the, the, the juror's room and he leans in and he goes, hey, you guys made the right decision. He was super guilty. And I was like, what is this? What, what's going on here? And, and they were like, but it was because that defense attorney was trying to be as good of an advocate as he could be because he made sure we weren't clouded by, we had no idea that there was past offenses. We had no idea there's all this stuff. We we're supposed to focus on this case and let nothing else cloud our decisions on it. He was advocating, but ultimately he lost his case advocating for his, for his client. In our advocate, though, defending guilty people never loses. Has a 100% success rate. Maybe you remember the TV show Perry Mason. 100%, the guy always wins, right? That's not real life, but it is for Jesus. A hundred percent. You see, we, we stand here. William Barclay says this. We have one to plead our case, and he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. No bishop or priest is our advocate. No pastor or an overseer or a deacon or your Bible study leader. There's no one other person that's stepping in to advocate for you. It's only one, but it's all that we need. It's Jesus Christ. He alone advocates, but he doesn't make it based on our own character. He makes it that he paid the price for my guilty plea. And so those four people in a courtroom, the judge, the prosecutor, the defendant, the defense attorney, if you picture in your mind God as the judge, the prosecutor, the laws that have been broken have been God's laws. In a way, God is the prosecutor saying that this person is guilty. But if a prosecutor is one trying to poke holes in the case, the, the real prosecutor that ends up coming is often Satan. We are the accused sitting on the stand and our attorney for our defense is Jesus. And what a picture this is. We can see in Revelation chapter 12 about this. He says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser, of our believing brothers and sister has been thrown down at last. He who accuses them and keeps bringing charges of sinful behavior against them before our God day and night. Satan's called the accuser of Christians and it says he accuses them before the throne of God day and night. Satan is, is this prosecuting attorney and when I sin, you can almost imagine 
That when you, when you sin, when you make that mistake, you fall to that temptation, Satan is running to go say and point and say, see? No, he is guilty. See, he did it. However, with Christ, and this is on your outline, with Jesus Christ as my defense attorney, he stands up to plead my case before the judge. And he says something like this. He says, yes, Father, he is guilty. We are putting in a guilty plea. But Father, I went to the cross and I died for that sin. And when he was a young teenager or he was in middle school or he was in his 30s, he placed his faith in me and my atonement was applied to him and his sins were forgiven. He's covered in my blood and he is forgiven because he is mine. In our modern world, a defense attorney defends the, the defendant on the merits of their defense, on the merits of their character. But in John's picture, the advocate, the advocate fights on the merit of himself. So when we mess up, when we sin, it's all Jesus. Jesus is the one who does the legwork and gets the research. He's the one that steps forward and makes appeals. He files all the motions. He defends us even when we were guilty because of his grace, because of his forgiveness, and because we are his and he is ours. So when Christ steps in for the believer who is agreeing with God about their sinfulness, Christ is not stepping in for the believer that is saying that there's nothing wrong saying that they aren't guilty, saying that if you just understood my life, you would get why I did those things. No, no, Jesus stands before his defendants say, yes, I am guilty, and I do deserve the punishment. And then Christ steps in before the divine judge, and he says, responding, that he's paid the sins of this person. And then the judge says, I'm satisfied, case dismissed. And so Jesus' work as an advocate is what leads to our salvation. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge and condemn the world, that is to initiate the final judgment of the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We can't be an advocate for others like Jesus is our advocate. But we can direct others to the one and perfect advocate through our prayer, through our words, through our life. And so our question as we, as we leave this morning and as we continue to pray over this is that who do we need to advocate and to tell? Who do we need to advocate for in prayer this week in our life? Because our advocate, and this is on your outline, our advocate is our atoning sacrifice. Our atoning sacrifice as John says here in 1 John, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atoning sacrifice is, is a great translation of this because it's communicating that God is full of grace and he is loving, but he is also just. Because to explain the meaning of atoning sacrifice, it's really about four words packed into there about characteristics of God. It's God's wrath and justice and his holiness and his love. And these four distinct characteristics come together with him bringing about an atoning sacrifice. Because you may have wondered now or as an early Christian why, why God couldn't just go and wave his hand and say, everything is forgiven, everything is fine. 
all your sins are forgiven. Well, but if God is love, why, why can't he just wipe everything away? Because God is simply not just love, but he is also holy and just. And because sin itself, living in the darkness when he is the light, is an affront to his holy nature, as well as disregarding and disbelieving in his sovereign rule over the universe. And so he has righteous anger towards sin, sin needing punishment. But instead of leaving it there, his atoning sacrifice says, even though there is a punishment deserved, I will come and cover that punishment through the work of Christ. In 1987, there was a Northwest Airlines flight 225, and it crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, and it killed 155 people. But there was one survivor, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. The news accounts say that when the rescuers found Cecilia, they, they didn't believe that she had been on the plane. The investigators first assumed that Cecilia must have been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway that the plane crashed on. But then they checked the passenger register list for the flight, and Cecilia's name was on it. And they found out that Cecilia survived even as the plane was falling because her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around her body, and wouldn't let her go. Nothing could separate that mother from the love she had for her child. In those last moments, she, she wrapped her up and it wasn't a tragedy or disaster. The fall or the flames that followed, life nor death could separate her from, from putting herself in front of her daughter. And we are all like that child. In the middle of a disaster, whether we realize it or not, whether the folks outside of this building see it or not, we are in the midst of a disaster and we are trapped in our own sins spiraling down to an inevitable doom. But it's our God that loved us so much that he left heaven, came down to our level, and covered us and wrapped us up in his own body that we would survive the fall. Martin Luther gloried in this idea of Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, saying, learn to know Christ in him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. What a wonderful exchange that we have. There's never been such love. The ultimate problem beyond serious things that could happen to us, whether that be our health, whether that be our money problems or, or losing a job, every human faces so many problems in front of them, but the ultimate problem is that there is, there is a doom and destruction. And the ultimate problem we face is how do we remove God's wrath? And in John chapter three, the gospel of John, he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. 
So what does this mean that Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sin? How is he, how, how is he our advocate for sinners? That Christ is the atoning sacrifice means that the removal of God's wrath is no longer upon us, the accused, but instead upon Christ and is paid for by the death of Christ. The good news that we have to share to everyone is that God himself has provided the way so that we do not have to be under God's wrath. John says it like this in 1 John chapter four. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was not God's desire to leave his people under his wrath, but, but wanted to make a way because of his holiness and goodness, he wanted to make a way for us to be with him, but he couldn't just sweep it under the rug. So instead he made a way through Christ. And there's no more wonderful news than that that we could have to give to anyone. That Christ took on the wrath, took on our payment, took our place so that it could no longer be counted against us. This is what it means to be our atoning sacrifice and our advocate. But then we, we see another response. As we draw towards the light, this is on your outline, we should share this good news with the world. The final word we see in these two verses is that we are not to keep this good news to ourselves. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says it like this, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. In other words, no one who is enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus can be content to keep that to themselves. If you understand the work that has been done for you, the forgiveness and love that you have received, you cannot keep it to yourself. He's not the atoning sacrifice for my sins only. He is for our sins and all those that would believe. This is in the last command that Jesus has given. In Matthew chapter 28, when he tells to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, if, if we understand what has been done for us, that Jesus has done so much and is doing so much for us, there are natural reactions and conclusions. Number one, it leads us to holiness. If we understand the light of who God is and the darkness that we were in, we naturally turn to his holiness and light. But also, as we naturally turn to that holiness and light, we are reminded of the darkness of the world and we desire to share it. We should say with Paul, like he says in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us because, we're no because we are convinced that one died for all and that therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Because we understand what has been done for us, it turns us towards the light and towards others. As we think of those that are around us that, that don't believe and our reactions are only simply reactions of annoyance at them or frustrations or disgust at the darkness of this world, we are missing, we are missing that second step. We turn towards the light and love the light 
and then turn and, and pull others towards us to tell them of the advocate that they have. Because you see, John's message for us today can be summarized in this. Simple words, but hard to live out. He says, don't sin. It's serious. Don't sin, don't, don't, don't desire to fall back into those ways. But if you do sin, don't despair. If you do sin, don't believe one more lie from that temptation, that as you fell to that temptation and the tempter comes in and says, well, you might as well keep doing more. You're already broken. You already failed. It says, don't believe that and don't despair because you also have forgiveness through Christ. Your attorney, your advocate is the son of the judge. It's on your outline, the son of the judge. You have the inroad. You have the way to make things right, but it's not through you. It's not through weighing out that hopefully you've done enough good at the end of your life. You can hope that that was enough for God. We can be secure because of not ourselves, but who we know. He is righteous, and he is the one that makes the case for you. Not because you're perfect. Not because you've done everything right, but because of his atoning sacrifice. So we're called to be strong in the Lord. We're called to look towards the light, to, to draw towards these deeper truths, not just to know things, but to grow and change our hearts to reach out to others. And so this week, our question is, how will we let someone in our life see this and know this? How will we let someone in our life know that we have seen the light, that we, we know the light giver? Maybe it looks like confessing where we're at. Maybe it looks like being honest with what God is doing in our life. Maybe it looks like sharing this truth to someone who is overwhelmed with the weight of the darkness in their life, whether they would call it darkness or not, that they are living out of sync with the ways of God. Our goal as a church and from our overseers is that everyone would be active in sharing our faith. That as we leave this building, it is not just a fill up for ourselves to try to make it through the next week, but that we come encouraged to bring others to the advocate. But we also each week pray for the world because there are so many in the world that do not have any access to this truth. They can't accidentally drive by a billboard that might connect them somewhere. They can't see a church on every corner. They can't open up their phone to have an app with five million English translations for them of the Bible. Because there are places in the world that, that only have a law of works that you would hope to be good enough to enter something afterwards and we know that that can't be done. And so when we talk about sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth, to planting churches where there are none, we are talking about doing the natural thing that we are all called to be a part of. And so as Pastor Kenny shared, the opportunity that we have as a church to join in the missions course is not just for those that say, oh yeah, I think I want to, to go to another country, but it's for all of us to understand this is all our problem. This is all our opportunity to share our faith. And so please, sign up for that. Please hear the gospel repeated as you even saw in those little clips 
of knowing the gospel deep in your heart that it moves you and changes you. Because each one of us has an opportunity this week and in this life to not live it for ourselves, but to understand that, that my way has died. And now I look to Christ in the light and I walk towards him. And when I stumble, I have an advocate in forgiveness and there's nothing that can separate me as I confess and I'm honest with God. And as you are honest and you continue to grow, you bring others into that light. So this week, each one of us, in our circles of influence, at your job, in your home, with your family, as Thanksgiving comes up, which has opportunities, I know for all of us to maybe sin in our attitudes, maybe around family. These are opportunities that God's giving us to, to show his light. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you've made it possible for us this morning through, through so much to know your son, not just our representative, but our advocate, the payment for our sins on the cross. And it's not just in the past, but it is current that, that Christ advocates for us even today. That on your throne right now, you sit for us and you deeply desire for us to rely on your spirit to live our lives, to rely on your strength to walk in the light. So we pray this week that you would show us how to apply these things and apply these truths, these truths and to walk out of these doors in the power of your spirit, proclaiming the name and the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Will you please stand with me for our benediction. If God's spoken to you this morning or you would desire prayer for something coming up this week, as you think of someone to pray for, please come forward to the prayer team and, and have them pray for you, pray with you, because we believe in the power of prayer. And we believe in the power of prayer together as a family of God, as brothers and sisters. So please, if you desire prayer, come forward this morning. Our benediction from Revelation. To him who sits on the throne... And to the lamb who was slain, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Forever and ever, God is on the throne. You go in peace this week. May God encourage you and give you strength in his spirit. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Please greet someone on your way out and please pray together as well. Have a wonderful Sunday. Do you wish that you could see it all?